Welcome to the Inside Aesthetics podcast. We host real conversations with real experts from around the world. Away from the filtered bubble of social media, our aim is to educate listeners and explore any topic in the cosmetic and wellness space. We also get a unique insight into the business minds of the entrepreneurs and pioneers who have helped shape our industry. This podcast and its related publications provide news and general information about procedures and products. You should seek professional medical advice and assessment before considering any treatment. Our guest today is Dr. Christian Subio, better known as just Subio. Subio is a plastic surgeon based in Philadelphia in the USA, and he's also a leading cosmetic injector. Subio is probably best known around the world, however, for his hugely popular Instagram account, where he teaches aesthetic concepts, crushes myths, and holds no prisoners in his hilarious take on treatments and life in general. We caught up with Subio to find out what's been happening in the USA lockdown, to drill down into why he became a plastic surgeon and to find out what exactly makes him tick. Drum roll, we've got Dr. Subio on. How are you, mate? It's good to meet you. Likewise. How's your day been? Is it, what time is it there? It is uh, 8 p.m. Okay. Not too bad. That works. What time yeah. is it there? Um, it's 10 in the morning. So I'm onto, I'm, onto yeah. my, I'm onto my fourth long black. I'm ready to go. <laughs> I've only been to Australia once. I was blown away by... Um, you know, there's only a, a small window where I could call my wife back here and it worked out well. Yeah, um, there you go. It's a bit of a, you're in Philadelphia? Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Well, so you're like 14 hours behind or something like that, isn't it? Something yeah, like that. yeah. It's okay. probably easier to call from Mars than Australia sometimes. It's just. <laughs> <laughs> I was only there for four days. I flew there for four days. Oh, what a waste. Yeah, I was like. All that way for four days. Yeah. It was, it was it like dazed the whole time. Was that when you did your moonwalk challenge with uh, Dr. Moroshnik? It was, yeah. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Yeah. I was going to turn <laughs> up and see if I could beat you guys, but uh, I, didn't, I didn't make it down. <laughs> I've already <laughs> forgotten. Well, it doesn't look like anyone's coming here for a while now. 2021, maybe they're going to start letting international travel happen like transcontinental. I don't, I don't know. Could really? be a while. I think so. Well, they're saying Australia, we won't be able to travel like abroad outside of New Zealand, which is pretty much Australia anyway. Sorry, yeah. anyone listening yeah, to New Zealand. There's no such thing as a, uh, a short plane ride for you guys, huh? No, it's a good thing and a bad thing. It makes it harder for the idiots to get here, but it makes it harder for us to get out. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> so can I? Can we call you Subio, Christian? What yeah, you whatever. Whatever rolls off the tongue easier is good by me. I know you go by Subio. I find it weird when people call me Sloan. I'm like... I'm not at school. Uh-huh. You should hear what they call you <laughs> behind just, your back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm just used to like everyone, high school, college, med school, everyone just, I introduced myself as Christian or Chris and then, you know, eventually it would just devolve to Subio. So, I'm like, you know, whatever. Okay. okay. We'll call you Subio. How yeah. long have you guys been doing your podcast? Since uh, last February. So about a year and nearly a half now. And it's, it's gone really well. I mean, with the aim well, the aim was really just to educate um, anyone who wants to listen, but it sort of turned into more of an injector audience, which is good because um, that's what I do. And David's actually a clinic owner. So David's you know not medical, but he owns skin and injectable clinics. So he's been around in the game probably well longer than me and he probably is super knowledgeable. So we come at the podcast in different angles and David's kind of good to have from the layperson perspective and I'm the doctor injector kind of perspective so it's good yeah mm-hmm. um and it's grown we're probably hitting like five and a half six thousand downloads a month now which is good that's awesome yeah that's for really most of us and in that amount of time it's good 
So, yeah. Especially for such a niche audience, you know, how many injectors are there to have, you know, five or 6,000 downloads? That's something. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. If, I, don't know if, I don't know if that correlates to how many listens because I don't know whether, like, collecting data on or getting sort of analytical data on what that sort of download means. Is it does is there people that are streaming it that aren't downloading the file? We don't, we don't really know. So it's kind of hard to get an, an exact accurate number of how many people are actually hearing it. So mm-hmm. it's, it's it's a little bit a little bit challenging, but yeah, I mean, and as you said, like our audience is super super engaged, and I think that's I think we're sort of moving towards that that environment now where people are just not wanting huge audiences for the sake of having bragging rights about I've got this many followers or whatever. It's so like, well, that, how many people do you actually have that actually really watch what you do and care about what you yeah. do? Yeah, it's it's akin to like Instagram. There's some of these accounts that have like 300, 400,000 followers and you look and they, they have like, you know, four comments or something or, you know, 400 views on their video. And you wonder, I'm, I'm always suspicious when I see something like that, you know? Yeah. Yeah, how how if you're like a, a butcher in Sydney and you've got like thirty thousand followers from Turkey, you got to think something's not right here. Yeah, doesn't even matter anyway. Yeah, exactly. Are, you know. <laughs> What's been happening in lockdown in Philadelphia? Was it as crazy as New York, or were you kind no, of? No, no. New York is kind of like a microcosm unto itself. Philadelphia is only it's like two hours by car, so it's relatively close to New York. It's a big city. It's on the East Coast. But it's uh, but New York is I think it was the worst hit in the world maybe per capita, um, just so dense, so densely populated. Philadelphia is not that, so it's not even on the same you know in the same ballpark as what's going on in New York. Yeah. Um, I, I I don't have much to report from my end of quarantine, and my quarantine was spent in my house, uh, you know, just hanging out with the fam making my doodles, trying to entertain myself. But I loved it. I loved it. You guys take advantage of your quarantine. Um, it was kind of weird here. I mean, I don't know what David's perspective, but like, I don't have kids. Yeah, well, yeah, you don't have kids, so that's been a massive win for you. I mean, here in Australia, like, it, it, it never really felt like things fully, fully took off. Um, obviously, we were in, I think it was level four lockdown, meaning that pretty much everything was closed, but then you could go to a shopping mall still, and there would be, I don't know, 30% of shops still open, and you'd kind mm-hmm. of wander around going, did I? kind of missed the rules are we now allowed uh-huh. to that again <laughs> yeah uh and yet other people took it super seriously and we didn't see them for two months so it was kind of like a pick and choose of how you want to do covid uh-huh. um, it was, yeah it's a bit weird but um we've definitely relaxed things now and we were just saying before we kind of started recording that most clinics will be open by june the first pretty much yeah. nationally um, which is good for David, seeing as he owns several. Yeah, <laughs> it's stressful for David. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, well, I think it's I... good for everyone. You know, it's it's. Uh, I, I, again, like we're so so far away from each other that, but even still, like I, I think that uh, at least here in the states, we got to get back to it at some point. You know, and uh, what I tell anyone who will listen is like, look, th- th- there's going to be a certain degree of risk. Everyone assumes a certain degree of risk every time you walk outside your door, every time you get in your car on the highway. Um, at least here in the States, you know, and I can't speak for the Australian economy, but you know, like it's, you know, unemployment is at record highs here. The, the economy is just, is nose diving and, you know, it, it comes to the point where, what, what, you know, what are we achieving here? Like, uh, if we're, uh, if the whole ship is going down then, and, and, you know, we, I think we need to reassess how, you know, what is our tolerance of risk here? So, I'd imagine it's the same there anywhere, really. But uh, at this point, I'm ready to get back into it and accept a certain degree of risk. I think patients are. Um, so, yeah. yeah. 
Well, I know the Australian economy, the, the stimulus packages that, that they've been rolling out is costing the economy for about $4 billion a day, which for our, the size of our economy, which we've got like 23, 23 million people in the country, that's a huge amount of debt we're racking up. And then I was reading a statistic about the states. So every percentage point of unemployment equates to around about 30,000 suicide deaths or something along those lines, something, something crazy like that. It's hard to quantify yeah, those things. Yeah. I mean, here in the States, it's been so politicized. And, mm. uh, you know, again, I, I'm not sure how how partisan Australia is, but here in the States, it's crazy. Like something as basic as a pandemic has been politicized. And so you have to wonder when you hear stats like that, is that just you know, on both sides? I'm kind of a centrist, but I hear a stat like that. I'm like, is that really the case? Like, Or is that just, you know, a stat that's been manipulated to push to back to work? Because how, yeah. how do you even quantify that for 1% you know, yeah. of, uh, of unemployment will equate to X deaths from opioids and you know, yeah. this degree of domestic violence? Uh, people are doing all sorts of things with these stats. Yeah, you can, you can sort of manipulate stats to, to sort of illustrate or prove whatever point you want, really, I guess, to a, to a certain degree. But it's sort of like weighing up the lesser of the two evils. Do we shut down the economy and, and sort of try and keep everyone safe forever? Or, or do we sort of, as you said, take the risk because... The, the downside of the lockdown is obviously the economic fallout and unemployment and all those other things. It's like you got to choose the lesser of the two evils. Yeah. And there's something to be said for quality of life and, you know, yeah. and, you know, enjoying the economy, which makes all things possible. It makes infrastructure yeah. possible. It makes the ambulance that brings you to the hospital. If you get sick yeah. possible, it makes, yeah. you know, the things that life wor- make life worth living going to a show or going to the ballpark or a concert or a restaurant. Like mm. at some point I'm willing to, to consider at what, you know, what is the death toll that is acceptable to maintain a certain quality of life? Cause I think everyone would agree you yeah. know, life means being stuck in your house without interacting mm. with your fellow people. Again, most people are willing to take a certain degree of risk that the, you know, maybe one in a hundred that, the, that they catch it and die. Like I'm willing to take that risk. If it meant living the rest of my years cooped up on my couch, no way. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, I mean, but if, if you don't want people to take risks, make smoking illegal and stop people driving cars. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I just quit smoking five years ago, actually. Oh, did you? Yeah. yeah it I seems to be a common right? thing amongst surgeons. I've known a lot of surgeons that are smokers, a lot of doctors that are smokers. Oh, it's great. I miss it. Every time I'm on a crisp fall day and you see someone lighting up, like, mm, I would love that, but oh well. How did you stop? What did you do? Um, I tried everything. I tried, you know, I tried the pills. I tried the patch. I tried, uh, I got hypnotized. Um, I tried, uh, you know, self-help books and everything. And one day, like, you know, I must have quit like 200, 300 times. And then the one time came along, I was just like, "Ugh, this is getting pathetic. Why can't I just, you know, it's just a matter of getting tired of failing at quitting. So one time I did it and day by day, it just stuck. Uh, if you listen to Rogan, you'd um, know that there's been, he's had lots of discussions around the use of um, psychedelics and how they're helping people break habits. Yeah, people, it's, people, uh-huh. yeah it's crazy. It's, like, it's being studied now. It's, well, it's being, psychedelics. Well, it's being um, studied now at John Hopkins University. Like there's heaps of like credible institutions now using um, these uh, drugs to help people with these psychological disorders. It's pretty, pretty yeah. interesting. Yeah. It's, it's, it's funny what we deem acceptable and what's not, right? Well, yeah, it's good we're doing it legally now, not without people knowing, like they did uh, with the Unabomber and people like that, <laughs> with those LSD studies <laughs> yeah, right. back in. <laughs> At least people know now. <laughs> oh, 
Well, you've heard it here first. In a year's time, Dr. Subio is going to do another podcast on LSD with us. Awesome. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> going back hey, to what you're saying about, um, sorry, the politics, like how do you feel as an educated American seeing what's being said? I mean, I'm just flabbergasted at some of the stuff, but like, how, how do you take it? I mean, you mean by like the politicians and the... Oh, yeah, your, your main man. Trumpy. Yeah. It, <laughs> look, it's, it's, um, I don't know. It's, I don't know who to trust anymore, to be honest. Like, uh, I mean, it, or especially early on in this whole thing, even the scientists were, and believe me, I'm, I'm a pro science man. I'm, you know, I'm not the like, science denier, anti vaxxer, any of that kind of nonsense. But early on, like, the, the recommendations were changing almost on a weekly basis. Um, yeah. And so everyone's taking their stance and planting their flag and, and, and then the next week it would be refuted or, oh, no, well, we think this. You, now you wear masks. You, now you don't. And, now, and then it can be spread by doing X, Y, or Z or that lives on surfaces. The science was changing every week. So I don't know. I mean, I, I, that, that's why I'm very frustrated. I'm waiting for the people smarter than me to figure this out. Whose job is it to figure this out? You know, like, uh, yeah. <laughs> Well, you're, why you're, do we have no PPE? Why do why do we have no PPE? Was no one in our country or your country prepared for the potential of a bio a bioweapons attack? Good lord! If imagine if like a real virus hit us, because <laughs> COVID nineteen is it's not all that bad by viral standards. Imagine if like you know it's a fifty percent death rate, um, and a higher transmissibility that could wipe out the world. And we weren't prepared for this. We didn't have masks. We didn't have a a streamlined testing system. It's crazy. Well, didn't Trump, didn't Trump disband the pandemic? Wasn't there a pandemics team? Yeah. Yeah. yeah right. and, it, and then he forgot though. about it. And then he forgot about it. And then he asked, oh, no. he couldn't remember doing it. Yeah. <laughs> I forget all about a lot of things that the, don't, uh, that, that oh, we've got we need to forget. Well, we've got some questions about Trump coming up soon. So that'll be interesting. <laughs> Ooh, I'll lose half my base. <laughs> Well, let's That's just the way it is in out. the States. You can't, like, whenever it comes to politics, I just can't. I know, it's like religion. Because it is. It's because, like, you're not going to convince anyone of anything they don't believe, especially here. Everyone's so goddamn opinionated. You're not going to change anyone's mind. And the most you're going to do is piss them off and potentially, you know, yeah. call, put a target on your back. So yeah. like when it comes to stuff like that, I'm like, oh, all right, whatever. And again, like I said, I'm kind of, like, centrist. I'll pick from one side and the other. Yeah. You know, more of a libertarian. Of, uh, so yeah. I don't know. Well, the problem is all, all the crazy people on either end of the spectrum, whether they be liberal or, or conservative, they're the like they're generally like a, the most vocal, destructive bunch of people. All the people that are relatively normal and don't really say that much, so they sort yeah, of disproportionately when, represented because you only yeah, hear the crazies. Think, mm-hmm. <clears throat> they're the ones that get the, all the news coverage these days because it's clickbait. One side mm-hmm. or the other, whoever has the craziest opinion is going to get the news, going to get the headline. Yeah, had you down with your gun at the town hall saying we need to shut down the lockdown. I thought that was your kind of thing. <laughs> you know, my big mustache. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah it's so, scary, isn't it? If you listen to the news, you're uh, misinformed, and if you don't listen, you're uninformed. You can't win. Yeah, I mean, I, I am blaming. I'm not one for the whole, you know, label everything fake news either. Um, but. The whole, again, in the States in particular, even that has become politicized. So one outlet leans 
left, the other outlet leans right, and there's no such thing as really objective journalism anymore. Yeah. Because and and I kind of get it because the classic press, you know, there's no much such thing as newspapers anymore, really, or magazines. No one buys them anymore. All anyone's doing is surfing on the web. And if you don't have a, you know, a headline that's going to get your juices or get you angry or excited, no one's going to click on it. So no one wants to hear objective news anymore. Yeah. And also these traditional news sources, as they become less and less relevant because people are looking for things online and on social media, they're getting more and more desperate to get people's attention. So the, the articles mm -hmm. are becoming more outlandish and, and more sensationalized yeah. in, their, yeah. in their desperate attempt to stay relevant, which is not yeah. It's Yeah. You know, I wonder where it's going to be in 10 years. It just gets worse every year. Mm. Something's got to break at some point. Um, Subi, I saw your interview with our mutual friend Nicole Canaris from South Africa. Um, it was kind of insightful. But what have you been doing apart from a million webinars and Zooms and stuff? What have you been doing with yourself? Like, you're obviously into art. So tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, my, I'm always trying to come up with like little projects. Where'd my iPad go? Um, little projects to, to learn something new, learn new skills, keep it interesting. So my latest little project is... Um, is a drawing on the iPad, art, art programs on the iPad, on a program called Procreate. And it's, it's so cool. The stuff you can make is really amazing. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, that, and plus I got a two-year-old and one on the way. So uh, uh, On the way? Yeah, yeah. Uh, how, far, how far along? Uh, she's a, just, uh, August 25th is, is the due date. I don't know how many weeks that makes her, but. Uh, Congratulations. That's uh, very good. Thanks, man. Yeah. It's, uh, but yeah, I don't know, man. It's like, you know how it goes. Like suddenly our schedules were cleared of clinical duties and it's like a vacuum. Everything else fills it up. Um, you know, planning for the return, you know, stuff like webinar, you know, trying to work on webinars and trying to attend webinars. I'm still trying to learn things and see what other people are doing. Uh, trying to pick up new hobbies, trying to, you know, like little things like cook a meal, things that you didn't really enjoy before. Because uh, I was talking with a patient today and like, you know, when, when again are we going to have an opportunity like this? Hopefully not anytime soon. Probably but never. Take a, yeah, probably. Unless like something something yeah. worse comes along in a year. Like who knows? But like, but you know, like, let's say we're never going to have that opportunity again for two months, three months of our lives where we weren't working. Yes, yeah. I mean, it's just until you retire, it's not going to happen again. Yeah, totally. yeah. So, what can you cook? What's your like? If I was, if you were going to go on a date with someone, what would you cook them? Well, first of all, my my wife would not be happy about that. <laughs> but uh, I don't know simple things. I'm not a good cook. I said, you know, um, I'm actually a very mediocre cook. I, I like uh, very very simple things like uh, salad. And, <laughs> That's uh, not cooking. That's putting no, it isn't together. <laughs> So we're going to drop CVOs. We're having half an iceberg lettuce each, Jake. Let's do it. Yes. <laughs> Nutrition. It's interesting that you touched on art, and this is a question I was maybe going to ask later on, but I guess we can sort of touch on it now, is that um, well, we've had like a number of injectors on. We've had plastic surgeons that also do a lot of injecting. Um, and it seems that there's a common thread that generally the people that are at the top of their game have artistic endeavours or artistic backgrounds. Um, and when you're looking at, people who move into medicine, it's generally quite an analytical type brain that's attracted to that to that sort of profession. But when you're moving into the aesthetic side of things, it seems like artistic sensibility um, for to a large extent isn't there. Do, do you think that it would be beneficial for people moving into the aesthetic arena, whether it be surgical or non-surgical, perhaps some formal education on art, such as line, form, proportions, symmetry, light, shadow, all those sorts of things would be 
beneficial to creating more skilled people from an aesthetic perspective? Yeah, that's a really good question. I realize it's so fashionable these days in not just injectables, but in anything, aesthetic medicine, surgery, whatever, to label oneself an artist. I mean, hell, I I do it. I I capitalize on that as much as I can. My my trademarked tagline, become art. So I I seize upon that like anyone else, but it's certainly a fashionable thing to do. So anyone in the game likes to, oh, I am an artist and I see the art and you are my canvas. It gets all this romanticized nonsense, but you know, there is something to it, obviously, because this is, and I, I don't want to talk like this is some romanticized version of what we do. Oh, the human face is my canvas. No, I dance about it with my syringe. You hear all this bullshit that people love to talk about. Um, but, you know, at its most basic, obviously, you need some artistic sensibilities. Um, but, you know, I don't, it, you would think it is absolutely necessary. But in both aesthetic surgery and injectables, there are some people who have beautiful results. And if you hand them a pencil and a paper and tell them to draw something, they could they couldn't really draw anything better than a stick man. Some yeah, people are yeah. like that. That's so me. I mean, it's yeah, it's weird, you know. Like, and you do beautiful work. So like, do you need to be able to create some two D masterpiece on with oil on a canvas? No. So it's it's just weird. I don't quite understand it because on one hand, I would think it's a prerequisite, and it's very fashionable to say that. But when you get down to it, there are plenty of amazing injectors who don't really have much of the classic 2D artistic sense to them. So I don't know, you know, yeah. because the, 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 the knee jerk answer to that is for everyone to say, oh, yes, of course, you need to be an artist within and you need to be an artist to understand the human face. But like there are plenty, again, plenty of injectors out there who don't have that, who produce beautiful results. So I don't know. Yeah, well, maybe some of those results are just being produced because of their innate abilities. Maybe they're more artistic than they realise and they're just going off what instinctive, instinctually feels right. Yeah. And I guess mm-hmm. everyone, whether you're a sculptor or a painter, a singer, whatever it is, um, some people have those, have those inherent abilities but and some people have their preferred medium. But just because you can't draw doesn't mean maybe, maybe it'd still be beneficial to have an understanding of the concept because all a lot of most art generally sort of comes back to very like a lot of core principles. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I think uh, you hit the nail on the head. Some people don't realize it, and maybe it's just expressed. It's a latent thing that's expressed without, um, you know, without having the classical training. So yeah. To speak. Yeah, I know um, Raj Aquila and Stephen Liu, they both sort of sing the praises of spending some time with makeup artists um, because, you know, you can just understand light and shadow and contour and, you know, it's all an illusion, but you can create that with injectables as well, like basically the hills and the valleys to create those shapes. So, yeah, I think uh, you can learn that stuff to, to an extent, but, you know, you can't teach someone an aesthetic eye. Like, you know, I've, I've trained some people and they're just as far as I'm concerned, untrainable because they don't, they don't get it. Whereas someone who understands their mistakes, I'm not saying you have to be amazing at the start, but if you understand what went wrong, then you, then you can kind of learn from that. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I I think another part is, you know, you have to have the artistic, you know, eye at least, Yeah. but you also have, have to have the hands because someone can appreciate art and they might be able to pick out the shapes and the form and the shadows and the light, but you also have to have dexterity. Yeah, you know, and that's one thing that can't be taught. It can be practiced. You can get better to a degree, but you know, I think anyone that's you know, whereas there are some people that 
you know, can't necessarily draw that can inject. I don't think there's anyone that can inject that can't, you know, that are, is not good with their hands and good with, you know, you know, holding the syringe and sensing the pressure and moving it gently. Like you can't, if you're not dexterous, is that a word dexterous? Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah. And then you're, you'll never be a good injector. Yeah, I agree. And that's actually, you know, it's a bit controversial in some countries, but I think dentists tend to pick up the skill really quickly because they're used to that intricate work, injecting, working in small areas, and also working on people who are awake and don't like needles. They're used to all of that atmosphere before they've even... Yeah, I don't quite get the whole, you know, I, I think it's getting better. I think there was, you know, the injector... Aesthetic medicine is has traditionally been a good old boys club. You know, it used to be the domain 30, 40 years ago of plastic surgeons exclusively. And I'm a plastic surgeon, so I've kind of came up through that whole system where it's kind of like looked down upon everyone else. Oh, this is our field. We're the only true surgeons head to toe. We're the only ones that should be able to inject. And eventually it gave ground to you know, um, other people like dermatologists picking up the syringes and the scalpels and doing stuff. And, and then facial plastic surgery, oculoplastic and cosmetic doctors. And then, you know, nurses moving into it. And then, you know, dentists, like it, it keeps expanding and expanding. And I think that um, I don't understand the whole partitioning of, well, you can't do this because I mean, it, it's, it's a very nuanced, you know, discussion about who can do what. But I think, you know, this whole idea that I have these letters behind my name or this certification behind my name means I can do it and you can't. It's 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 an outdated way of thinking. Um, and, you know, the, uh, you know for the, the plastic surgeon who does amazing breast augmentations and also does hand surgery on the side might not have any interest in injectables. So he or she has you know, no claim to that more so than a dentist who, like you said, is, is working with needles all day and understands facial anatomy. Yeah. So this whole territorial tribalism about who gets to inject where, I just don't understand. Yeah, totally. Major issue here. I mean, we've got those factions here, as I'm sure you do in the States. And I think that, you know, the one disclaimer I'll make is that we need to ensure that the patients are safe and people are sort of adequately trained and skilled to, to sort of look after people. But beyond that, um, it's just people hiding behind that sort of patient safety sort of mantra that they like to sort of talk, you know, sort of sing from 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 the rooftops um, when it's really about money and territory and their share yeah. of the market. It, it's just it's just so disingenuous. It makes me feel quite ill, to be honest with you. Yeah, and, and like you said, it's very important, of course, yes. that on the other side of the spectrum, yes. it doesn't mean you can take a weekend course, be yeah. you a plastic surgeon <laughs> or a nurse or whoever. And suddenly you're an injector or, yeah. you know, or a beautician should, you know, who has no experience with that. You can't train anybody up to, you know, an injector, but like it's, so that, this is where the whole nuance of the thing comes yeah. in, as, as we said. Yeah. So your clinic opened up today, Subia, did it? Correct. Yeah. So what, what were you doing? Plastics consults or injecting or? little bit of everything uh, today like we're you know we yes uh, last week was our dry runs so we had the staff in last week going over protocol going over how we're doing things and this week you know we only had like two patients per hour so you know a botox which typically book for you know five or ten minutes we book for a half hour today so this way we can make sure our processes are all intact yeah um and i really today i was just doing above the you know upper half botox this port um some surgical consults a little bit of everything but just just to kind of get the wheels turning and, and look at the processes. 
I know you've been a real kind of champion on all these uh, doctors' webinars, sort of, you know, trying to promote healthy messages about safety and what to do with COVID and stuff like that. What's your take on using fillers, particularly around the mouth? Like, can you just explain where you stand with that? That's the big question. And, and I don't have the, the right answer. I don't think anyone has the right answer. Um, I think um, uh, I mentioned before, uh, I posted about this. Like, I don't think if, if one clinic wants to hold off on lower facial injections, that they should be you know, critiqued. If, yeah. if another clinic feels comfortable doing that, as long as they're doing it safely, you can't just wing it and go in and inject someone's lips with, you know, without taking your sterility and the precautions very, very seriously. If you are going to approach lips or chin or perioral or lower face, I'm okay with it as long as, you know, as long as you're taking as many precautions as you can, yeah. be, you know, be that, you know, you're obviously taking temperatures, you're limiting your schedule, you know, um, you know the mask time limited uh, without the mask, limited conversation, you know, ideally some other adjunctive measures. Um, so I don't think there's a right answer. It's a very, very difficult question. Yeah. I think it's going to be left up to the individual clinics as long as they are proceeding as safely as they can. Yeah. I saw your um, friend Steve Weiner, met him as well. He had this big sort of extractor unit that he had got into his clinic and he sort of you know, to try and get the air away from the patient. I mean, it's a, it's amazing, but it's completely impractical for 99.9% .9 of us. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, the question is like, there's, there's not, this back to the whole thing with science and recommendations, there's no good science on any of this. Yeah. So, you know, how long does it survive on surfaces? How is it most easily, trans it, it can, can you catch it outside? No one really knows if you're running past, you know, someone, um, no one knows the science or what which of these mechanisms or machines or whatever is going to actually decrease the risk. There's no studies. So my approach is going to be do as much as you can. Some of it's going to be optics for the patients to make them feel more comfortable. Yeah. And hopefully it uh, actually affects some, some degree of safety, but no one knows. You yeah. know? It's kind of just common sense and logic and, and do your best. Mm -hmm. Which and um, this gets back to the whole risk thing. You have to accept a certain degree of risk. Yeah. You know, and all of our patients are signing consent saying as much that COVID is out there. The only way to stay safe is to stay home still, even when everything opens. If you want to stay 100% safe, stay home yeah. until 2021, 2022, if that's your thing. But yeah. otherwise, you know, if you want to be doing these things, you have to accept a certain degree of risk. Yeah, totally. Were you inundated with people going mad saying, you know, when can I get in your clinic and DMing you on Instagram and all that stuff? Yeah, it's like, but, um, you know, um, it's, 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 that's what we've been working on the past couple of weeks is trying to, you know, for the first several weeks after this, it was canceling everyone and then rescheduling them and then canceling them all again and rescheduling and pushing it back. Who knew it was going to take three months. So the whole thing is kind of a mess in that, you know, everyone, it's just so much flux right now, like rearranging the schedule. So that's what I'm hoping is going to happen over this, this week, next week, following week is kind of Everything, everyone that's been pushed, you know, surgically and injectables is going to find their place on the schedule in the next couple of weeks. Um, from a business perspective, I'm obviously quite interested on the business side of things as well. What, what sort of financial impact um, 
obviously everyone's taken a financial impact while you've been closed, but like these new measures that we're all sort of now having to put in place, like limiting the amount of people that can come through our clinics, people you can see, distance, all that sort of stuff. Do you anticipate it making a big difference to the sort of financial, um, like financial situation of your of your clinics? Uh, that is a, another very good question. I think a lot depends upon what the economy overall does, because mm-hmm. it's still in this weird period where the American, you know, I've never been a, I'm no business savant or by anything by, by any stretch. Like uh, I've never really been in the stocks or the stock market. So economy, economics is not my thing, but I think a lot of this is going to depend upon where the stock market goes, what the overall economy is doing right now. I mean, the unemployment in the states, the unemployment rate is through the roof, but the stock market is still generally doing okay. It hasn't like crashed just yet. So, I think a lot of how what the real impact is going to be isn't so much right now, but maybe in like two, three, five months. What is the economy doing? So, I don't know. That's a very good question. In the short term, I mean, I, I think you know, is we were poised to have a great year this year. And, you know, once all this hit, like everyone else, it's, you know, decimated a couple months, zero profit, hemorrhaging money from because all the fixed expenses are still there. Um, but uh, I think in this business, you know, my, my perspective is as long as we're ahead of the game, as long as we're not losing money this year, I'll be happy. And that's not yeah. very... It's not a very lofty goal to set, I realize. But then again, I'm not trying to buy a yacht. I'm not trying to, you know, mm. you know, drive a, you know, Lamborghini or something. Like, I have very, you know, modest desires. So if I'm ahead of the game, if I'm positive, if I'm not losing money, then whatever. 2020 is a year where I didn't make a shitload of money, and I don't really care yeah. so much. Money is not what yeah. motivates me, you know. Yeah. So as long as I'm not, you know, you know, uh, hemorrhaging money anymore, that's all I care about. As long as I can keep ahead of the the, the of the expenses, which is where we're you know at now, that's uh, that's fine by me for 2020. And I again, I realize that's not a lot of people you probably have on this program. Are like, yeah, you know, like my empire. This I don't care. It's, <laughs> money is not a motivating factor for me. Yeah, I, I sort of do wonder what sort of impact this will have on prices because, like, for clinics like mine, for example, which were, which sort of work on a volume based model. Um, will it get to a situation where you are limited to the amount of people that you can see? A price is actually indeed going to go up rather than down. If you only can see at the, like a fraction of the people that used to come through your clinic um, and only certain people now can afford it because a lot of people aren't employed, are we going to have to increase our prices to still keep our businesses going, which would sort of be the opposite of what you think might, might would happen in this situation? I think, you know, I, I think there's going to be like a dichotomy. I think some practices are going to go for the volume – it may turn out that you're either going one of the two paths, like yeah. volume, bargain basement, and do as much as you can for as, you know, versus a niche, you know, brand of excellence where you have less patients who are willing to spend more. They're a, a better means. Um, so, uh, yeah, obviously everyone wants to be in the latter group. And I certainly don't want to be, you know, in, in the former, which yeah. I, it's a sad, sad reality. Here in the States, Florida is a prime example where there's, you know, I don't, I'm not sure if you guys are aware of what's going on in Florida. Yeah, it's the Wild it's West, like, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The Wild West. You, you know, it's, um, well, it's the equivalent there. Does everyone go to, to um, where's everyone go there? Um, Thailand what, you for mean? surgery? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. People go to Thailand or sometimes they go to Turkey or, uh-huh. yeah, there's a number of like sort of countries where they sort of got exceptionally cheap prices compared to here. Yeah, for here, like people either go to Florida or they keep going south and they'll go, you know, to you know, 
South America where the prices are just like insanely much it's cheaper. Yeah. So, mm. so Subio, for the people who I can't believe this haven't heard of who you are, how would you describe yourself and your practice? Oh, um, um, like like people in the business, like injectables. Well, uh, if there's a listening who's just you know not really an injector, maybe he's not on Instagram. How would you describe your practice? Because you're obviously a mix of injecting and plastics. Yeah, it's uh, I try to do a little bit of everything. I get bored easy, you know. Um, whereas a lot of surgeons tend to like beat their chest, like oh, I love the smell of the OR in the morning. Like I don't care, <laughs> I, you know. I enjoy surgery, but I also enjoy injecting, and I enjoy you know, the consult and I enjoy bullshitting with the patients in the, in the clinic. So I, variety for me is, uh, keeps it interesting. I'm, I get bored very easily. So it's, uh, so my practice is a little bit of everything. That's, uh, what's your kind of favorite specialty in the OR? What, what I think it's tummy tucks. I remember you said one. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that because like, you know, if I'm going to spend a couple hours doing something, which is what most surgeries are, then you want it to be an amazing transformation. Yeah. Um, and I found that the, the tummy tucks is for me is like uh, what it really changes the patient's life. Um, so if they're going to spend that much money, um, then, uh, which, you know, tummy tuck is not, is not a cheap thing. I want, I, I prefer those kind of things because in the end, all I want is very happy patients, very happy with the money they spent. So when it comes to surgery, since it's such a high price point, they better be elated or else I'm going to be really bummed out. So that's why I've gravitated more towards tummy tucks as opposed to some other things, which can, you know, might, might be a nice finesse result or might affect a nice subtle change. Um, you know, I think that's why, because they're spending money. I feel guilty if they weren't really wowed. Can I be cheeky and ask how much does a Subio tummy tuck cost? It's just a bog standard, uh, no, no nothing else? It's Well, if it's my price, anesthesia and the surgery center fees, it's, it's just shy of 12K US dollars. That's pretty good. That's cheap yeah, compared that's to here, I think. You need to double <laughs> yeah, your prices immediately. And move to Come on, let me get on the... I talk to my manager. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. No, I mean, in Philadelphia, at least, like, I mean, if you go to, that's kind of typical for the States, really. Like, if you go to certain markets yeah. like New York or LA, it might be a little bit higher. Um, but for the most part, that's, that's actually more expensive on the Philadelphia range of things. Mm. It's also US dollars, Jake, too. So add 30, 40% to that at the moment, too. Uh, yeah. Just thinking about, yeah. Um, Philadelphia, I think. Yeah. So a little bit about your background. So I mean, you're you're a plastic surgeon. You you've sort of do a fifty fifty split, from what I understand, between non surgical and surgical. Sort of, can you talk to us a little bit about your background? Like, why did you decide to become a plastic surgeon? And then once you've done all that time studying surgery and all that sort of grueling hours and sort of you know overtime and night shifts, you then went, oh, I'm actually going to now do fifty percent of my time doing what I didn't what I didn't study. <laughs> I guess to a certain extent. Yeah, it's um I don't know. I think uh, when I was uh, 16 or 17, I was considering going to art school, but I was kind of listless, you know, I didn't really if I'd have done that that would have been disastrous cuz I'm not really oddly enough I wasn't it's hard to explain. I I can't really I have tons of unfinished uh, unfinished paintings and drawings. Like I need deadlines and someone breathing down my back saying do x y and z. And if I went into art, I would have uh, I would never produced um so anyways, I saw a, um, uh, some kind of documentary or such on reconstructive plastic surgery. And I thought, Hey, that's a cool thing to do. You know, it's kind of artistic and, you know, I 
veered towards it, went to pre-med, and then it took like 15 years to finally get to point B where I was going to be, where well, I was a plastic surgeon. Um, and uh, and I, I've said many times, like, I, I would I would not have done it if I knew what was involved in it, because it, it's crazy. Like the, yeah, if you think 15 years of your life, you told me that when I was 17 years old, like, look, you're not going to, you know, you're going to be studying you know, working a hundred hours a week, taking orders from all these assholes, and, you know, <laughs> slaving away. Oh, I, I wouldn't have done it. But anyway, I came through it and, um, and, uh, eventually veered back towards art. And that's why, um, you know, Instagram in particular has been very successful for me because it's been a nice little creative outlet where I can do my drawings or funny videos or, you know, just create, just create, create, create. And that's made me very happy. What were you like as a student and as a, like a junior doctor? Were you just as the same character or have you come out of yourself now? No, I mean, I was very, you know, like in med school, hanging out with my buddies, like, you know, I was part of like the misfit crew in med school. We'd, you know, we, we wouldn't show up to class and we'd, you know, we'd be the ones in the library a week prior to the test, studying on the pulling all nighters. You know, I, I hated most of the people in my class. As I'm sure it is there, you know, typically in med school, well, med school is a different thing here in the States, but um, it's uh, the, the personalities in there, as you mentioned before, they tend to be very dry, analytic, scientific. They're the worst. I, I hated so many people. I think I have a general disdain for this field, for medicine as a whole. And I don't mean that, you know, it's not a blanket statement, you know, it is um, in that, like, look, I, there's plenty of doctors that I love, uh, but it just it's the antithesis of what I value, you know, going from, okay, I think I'll go to art school and then ending up in med school and all these, you know, how it is. It's like the, the, the ego, the pomp, the, the privilege. And I'm not, I'm not into the whole, you know, I'm not, you know, I don't, the whole privilege. I mean, like, you know, family on my daddy went to med school and his daddy went to med school. And like, it's like the kind of people that you're surrounded with for all those years. And then you get into residency and they're, uh, you know, Napoleonic syndromes and people barking orders at you and degrading you and hazing you. It's just like the whole thing. That's why I think back to it. Jesus Christ, 15 years of my life dealing with these people. So that I think is why I have such a, like, you know, so many people like are, Oh my God, I'm a doctor or I'm an injector and I get to do this. I'm so privileged. I'm like, uh, I, I I really am not impressed by our field at all. Like, you know, I, I gotta be careful. About what I say. Like, you know, it's, um, I don't know. It's, I, I value genuine real people and they're few and far between in particular, once you get into aesthetic medicine, once again, there's so much pomp and bullshit and, and, and disingenuous behavior and being bought by companies and, and, and horseshit pseudoscience. It's, um, so that I think it informs a lot of the decisions that I make where I think I stand out a little bit, you know, not because I'm special or something, but I'm just one of the few, not one of the few, one of the uncommon people in this field that doesn't really like have this, you know, oh, I don't put it on a pedestal like everyone else. I don't think I'm any better than any of my patients or any of my colleagues in family medicine or, you know, or, or. I don't think I'm anything special. And I think that's what maybe sets me apart from uh, a lot of people in the field. There's so much ego, so much pomp, you know? David and I talk about that pretty much every day, don't we? 
pretty much. <laughs> You're not that pompous, Jake. It's all right. I love you. Uh, <laughs> only six days a week. <laughs> but it's true. Pe- 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 I think people are drawn to realness. You know, we live in this sort of, whether it's Instagram or TV or whatever, we live in this virtual world where we have to put on a show for everyone and, um, you know, show everyone how much money we make or how, how many letters we have after our name. And I think people are just like jack of it. They're like, I just want to talk to real people. And I think that's probably why you're so popular is because, Real recognises real. Like people like to feel like they're having genuine connections with people. Yeah, and um, you know that it is so. You know, anyone that'll ask, I'll always tell them like, let that show through in your um, in your professional life when you're portraying yourself to your patients, to your prospective, you know, people who might you know come to your business. They want realness. They want authenticity, and that is refreshing. Um, it's getting less and less refreshing because. Thankfully, more and more people are, you know, I think that they're realizing the trend that, um, you know, people don't want the classic doctor, you know, in the stiff white coat and the head mirror and the stethoscope spending five minutes with them, talking to them like they're an idiot. They want someone they can bullshit with. And, you know, when people come into my clinic, they they get in the chair and I'm just like, I'm just bullshit with them. I'm just talking like a friend. And, you know, and it's it's that simple as that i'm not you know i don't i don't condescend to them i'm at their level and i think that's a very that is refreshing and that has translated into some success for me both on you know instagram and in you know with the word of mouth referral people appreciate that yeah i think we've said this many times before with our guests that a really good injector apart from obviously having the skill and the aesthetic eye is the x factor of connecting and getting people to be on their side and just have a laugh with them and make them feel like, okay, I can, I, can, I, I believe this guy. I believe what he's saying to me. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas many injectors are trying to sell and that doesn't work. Yeah. I, like I said, like, you know, before I, money is not, a mo- of course, I want to do as well as anyone. I'd mm-hmm. like to, you know, to live comfortably, but money has never been a motivating factor for me. So I think, Another reason why I've been, why I have enjoyed some success is because I'm not giving the hard sell to every patient. A patient comes in and I don't want to convince anyone to do anything or try to sell them this procedure. If anything, that'll make me nervous. And then, well, what if they don't like it there? You know, and then I, I don't want to have sold them something that, that that's not going to make them happy. So I'm not selling to people, and um, I'm just I turn away plenty of people. I sleep easier at night. I'm happier, and I think that makes me better at what I do because I'm just you know it just I have a very cons- uh, very consistently authentic, consistently trying to re- make my recommendations based on integrity and not trying to sell. You know, that's well, gross. I was going to ask you this later, but it's a good time to ask now. So obviously we've all got our own aesthetic and culturally where we're from, things are more popular and less, but how would you describe your injecting style? Like what, I I think you and me are very similar that we want a natural, you know, kind of a better version of yourself type of look, but how would you describe how you see a face? Um, You know, it's, um, I've been trying to make it more science, not scientific, but more, systematic and by that i mean ideally i want the people i hate the fact and you may have heard me bitch about this that that fillers at least here in the states i think it's similarly priced in australia if i'm not mistaken i think it's so expensive. expensive you're more expensive that? i think yeah. you're more expensive yeah, yeah but here in the states it's, it's the most expensive that i'm aware because it's the, the, to one syringe of filler could cost a brand new practice like 350 dollars us dollars um 
And so the fillers are so expensive. So to get back to your question, like how do I view a patient? I want the I want to be able to view someone without price tags and dollar signs over limiting how I'm going to inject them. And, and unfortunately, most, you know, it's one cc, bit of a teaspoon. It's not much. And if you're going to be able to make a nice transformation on someone, I want to be able to do five or six syringes or more, you know, depending on their age. Because most people, by the time you get to your 40s or whatnot, you could use a little bit of your temples, a little bit in your brow, a little bit in your nasal labial folds or mid-cheek or chin or or jawline. Like, it adds up. So when I view someone, I, what I, my favorite kind of patients are the ones that money is not an issue or budget is not an issue. And, yeah. and it's not because, oh my God, I get to charge more and make more money. It's because solely because I love making a beautiful, comprehensive um, transformation. Um, so that's why I'll frequently do these model calls where I'll get to use you know, if I want 10 syringes on someone all over their face, whereas for most people here in the States with the way they're priced, it's cost prohibitive unless you're, you know, some super high echelon practice in Beverly Hills or something. Most people can't afford 10 syringes or if they're going to spend that much, they're expecting a surgical result. But anyway, so how I assess a patient I'm trying to make it more system systematic. Number one, those are my favorite kind where I don't have to worry about budget. And then they come in and what I'll do is I'll talk to them. I'll find out what matters to them because if you're not treating what matters to them, you can do the most beautiful result in the world. But if you haven't addressed the fact that they're so bothered by their slight nasal labial fold, then it's a failure. They're not happy. So I want to find out what's what bothers them and make sure I prioritize that. But then I want to talk to them and can I get a 3D sense you know, looking at them, watching them talk. And then I want to get up on there and feel and press. But then what I'll do is I'll take a picture. And this is something I've been doing for like the past like year and a half now. It's really changed the way I do things is to extricate myself from that exam room. I'll go back to my office and I'll sit there with the, you know, I'll have their picture and I'll be looking at it and, uh, or, or I'll look on my phone and tinker with it. I'll make, I'll make it much more I'll spend a lot more time assessing in 3D and in 2D and come up with a plan. Like I have an app that, you know, I'll be looking at the the shadows on their face and they'll be sitting in the room. I'll be like, look, hang out here for five or 10 minutes. I'll be back. Just go on your phone. I'll be back. And I'll spend the time, you know, playing with their image, softening shadows or pulling their chin out or doing X, Y, or Z. And that's how I'll come up with the plan. It's a much more... You know, I just get out of the room and I just may with the picture and kind of coming up with my comprehensive plan. So it's it's a lot of trial and error on a virtual screen of me pulling and pushing and, you know, um, you know, that, that, that's how I'll do it. Um, and then I'll go back in. I'll say, hey, here's what I'd like. Here's what I'd like to do. Here's what it looks like on this on this pad. Would you like me to do that? It's going to cost you this much. Can we do that? I guess it's um I hear this all the time from from Jake and other injectors when people want this this phenomenal transformation but then you're limited by budget, um sort of like asking Michelangelo to to paint the Sistine Chapel with uh you know with like a you know with one tube of acrylic paint I mean like uh, how it's funny I I always <laughs> yeah, do that, that analogy of the paint tubes it's like yeah. and this is why where the, the 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 companies have us by the balls is that they get the they, they they price these things so exorbitantly that we now view our patients as how many 
How many syringes can I use? How many yeah. syringes? It's, it's ass backwards. I mean, we should be, think about the, 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 the artist analogy. If you go to an artist and you want to commission, I don't know who's famous in art these days, but like you go to a famous portrait artist, are they going to charge you based on, ah, oh, well, it's going to cost, it's going to take me 17 syringe, uh, 17 tubes of my, my favorite oil paint. That's what I'm going to charge. No, that's crazy. What you're going to, they're going to charge you based on the work that they produce. But the, but the companies have priced these things so crazy that mm. we have to, we have to sell it based on the number of syringes that we use. It's completely backwards. And yeah. that's why I'll, I'm always complaining about that. And especially against some of the bigger companies, people ask, why do you, why do you seem to have a chip on your shoulder about company X, Y, or Z? I'll tell you why, because they're making our job so goddamn difficult while making literally billions of dollars for their shareholders. It's, it's, it's backwards. It's like a builder charging you per brick to build your house. How many bricks do you want? Exactly. <laughs> you want it's a bedroom? Crazy. Okay. That's extra. Okay. It's crazy. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Yeah, interesting. So what what is the kind of aesthetic trends in Philadelphia or, or that part of the world? Like, are people still asking for big lips or is it the jawline that's still on vogue? What, what's trendy? It's funny. It's like, you know, it's less geographic these days, I think, and more Instagram based because everyone spending like like the rest of us is all your day is on instagram flipping through so that's what that's what dictates the trends so whereas before it may have been about geographic um you know texas they like look x and miami they look they like look y these days you know it's miami texas la they're all just a uh, six inches from you so and that's what dictates things now. And I think it's becoming less provincial about, you know, um, you know, who likes what, where, but with some exceptions, Texas is always crazy because they want everything gigantic, but you know, for everywhere else, um, you know, it's, uh, it's all about Instagram dictating the trends and, and, and people like the Kardashians dictating the trends and you know, <laughs> a big, uh, not a big fan of them as well for, for the same reasons. Yeah. <laughs> now you, um, studied plastic surgery, you've gone on to do injectables. Do you think that your your study or your time studying plastic surgery has made you a better injector? Or do you think that if you had gone, I just want to do injectables, you would have been a better injector doing injectables for all this time? Like I'm trying to understand, do you think there's a there's an advantage to having the plastics background in terms of what you're able to produce as, a, as, a, as an injector? This is another area where you have to parse out the bullshit from the truth. Because if you ask most plastic surgeons, of course, what are they going to tell you? I just, uh, me as a plastic surgeon, I spent, you know, six years, seven years of residency and fellowship in plastic, seven years of my life training to do something. So what am I going to tell most people to ask me? Oh, yeah, of course, it's, it's essential. That's what makes me better. I spent seven years studying this. You're going to go to me or the guy down the street who hasn't, of course. So that's why, like, you, you, you know, there, there's so much that's disingenuous answer. A truthful answer is that, yes, some of what I learned in those seven years has helped me as an injector, but very limited. I'd say maybe 10% of that. You know, a good chunk of my plastic surgery residency of my residency training which included general surgery plastic surgery and microsurgery i'd say about 90 percent of that i do not use ever maybe 10 percent of that those cases where i was dissecting the face for a facelift or for a facial fracture or for a mose reconstruction those cases helped me understand the face 
and the anatomy and make me a better injector. Maybe some of the cases I did where I'm doing flaps on the abdomen for reconstruction help me understand human tissues and the way they heal. And it's difficult to quantify the, the amount that that contributes to my daily existence as an injector, but it's certainly not 90%. So to answer your question, has all that made me a better injector? Slightly, you know, bits and pieces have made me a better injector, but it's certainly not a prerequisite that someone spends seven years of their life doing something to become an excellent injector. And in fact, if there were a system in which someone just spent two years of their lives doing an injectable fellowship, which does not exist, but, you know, which involved cadaver courses and, you know, traveling around learning from different injectors and, um, you know, going to the factories and looking at the gels, that would be a much better time spent than seven years in a plastic surgery residency. Yeah. We had this similar discussion with Dr. Tavakoli last week. I don't know, Jake, maybe you were going to say the same thing just now, um, that he was talking about whether it be cosmetic surgery or injectable. He was talking more about surgery because he doesn't do injectables himself, I don't think, but he was talking about the fact that you know, this cosmetic area of medicine has sort of just evolved and you've got people from whether they be anaesthetists or general practitioners or nurses or whatever, they're all sort of coming together to perform, you know, the, these sort of procedures. And he was talking about the fact that, well, we actually need like a training program for cosmetic medicine. Like as a plastic surgeon, you might want to do two years of basic plastic surgical training and then the rest of the time is focused purely on cosmetic. Um, and that was something that he, that he was talking about is like we need to look at our uh, overhaul the way we're training people because we're trying to, we're sort of like trying to retrospectively sort of mould people into um, aesthetic practitioners rather than them actually being able to study um, these sorts of treatments from the get-go or have that career path lined out from the beginning. Yeah, and this is part of the reason I mentioned before where I'm so you know jaded at the whole process that I've been through to make me you know, a plastic surgeon. Part of it is the people, and the other is the fact that so much of my time, so much of my life, and what is your life but time has been wasted, you know, utterly wasted studying the Krebs cycle, studying <laughs> RNA reverse transcriptase and, you know, what um, what Chagas disease looks like under a microscope. So much of my time has been wasted. And in another lifetime, maybe I'll come back and try to redesign the whole medical system, you know, uh, you know. If given time, I would love to do something like that, like make it a more efficient thing where so much of my time has not been wasted. So many people going into this would waste so much of their valuable life on stuff they'll never use because I don't use 90% of what I learned. So the problem here, and I'm guessing it's the same in the States, if you want to go into injectables, and I get this question 100 times a week um, on DMs from you know nurses and stuff is, there's no formal sort of syllabus or, or training school or anything like that. So a few third parties have set up their own groups and they make a lot of money. They talk a lot of bullshit and they give them some basic skills at the end of the day to go and work somewhere. And then these people are kind of stuck because they, they've got no mentor. They've got no advanced college to go to to build on what they've learned on the basics. And yet people like ourselves who are injectors say, well, you know, you just you just need to start from somewhere and and then you're on this vicious loop of no one training anyone and us people saying go and train you can't work at my practice until you've trained so mm -hmm. it's just yeah. really, really difficult yeah it's uh i don't know though i don't have the answer there and this is something where the industry is taking advantage of this as well by you know they kind of gotten industry has gotten involved in training which to some degree is good because 
not many people are offering free training, but on the other, they're indoctrinating people with this pseudoscience. They're they're getting their superstar KOLs to you know, you know go all over and 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 toe the company line and talk about you know it's I don't like the whole the, the industry influence in the training, and that's what's becoming the main mechanism of training these days is industry. Um, so you learn, it's so you learn the dogma of a one particular company and don't really question it because you see these, you know, superstar injectors, you know, towing the company line and suddenly, well, of course that's, that's the way it is because they say so. Do, are you an ambassador or a trainer for any of the companies? Um, not a trainer. I, I it's funny because I, I don't think I, I've expressed interest in that earlier in my career. I, I don't have an interest in that these days, but I don't think it would work out anyway, because <laughs> I think in order to be a trainer for the companies, a lot of times they want you to say X, Y, and Z and push our product. And, you know, and I've seen anytime you go to a lot of these trainings, people, you know, what about this product? And you can't really talk about that because it doesn't really, it's the competition or what about does your product cause nodules? Oh no, no, it's fine. Like it's like, this whole bias, there's so much money being thrown around mm-hmm. that it doesn't really gel with, you know, um, that, that's why I veered away from trying to get, this is why I have been doing things like, you know, trying to, trying to get into, you know, webinars and stuff like that to teach through, through that because industry doesn't have their hand in it. When industry has their hand in it, they immediately compromise everything. And you can't really, it's the opposite of what, you know, at least in the States, there's the Sun- Sunshine Act or something like where industry, pharmaceutical industries are not allowed to get their dirty hands into everything. But injectables yeah. is not a, a, a drug. It's a device. So they've circumvented that. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's one thing that bothers me a lot about our business is the, is the influence that industry has on education. Yeah. Fair enough. What are your favorite toxins and fillers? Oh, yeah. Um, favorite toxin, I think, by far, is Dysport. Okay. Um, and that's because it just, it, and again, here in the States, we have uh, Botox, Dysport, Xeomin, <laughs> and But no, Dysport is for me, it's the strongest. It, it's the quickest onset. It, it, it definitely is stronger per unit, per, per vial. It packs more punch than the leading toxin. So I just like it better. Ever since I've made the switch, my patients really like that better. And if I've, you know, they, they themselves have noted, oh my God, ever since you switched me to this new toxin, that's, I've noticed the difference. It lasts longer. Okay. Um, it, it works quicker. It works stronger. Um, as far as gels, um, you know, a lot of my decisions are based upon, you know, trying, unfortunately, factoring in the cost of things because now first off i would never use a gel or product that is not as you know that that has a compromised quality in any sense whatsoever but if you think about the way our hands are tied as far as the pricing on some of these things that is a compromise in quality because you can't give you can't treat your patients to completion if your patient needs five cc's of gel i'm going to go with whatever gel they can you know on their budget allows me to get to that end result. Um, so you don't so, take the attitude that as the sculptor, you you want the material that you want to play with. You want the special clay or whatever. Ideally, that I have to qualify this because I think so much of our business is, is um, unfounded. 
in that, oh my God, this this gel has a higher G prime or it's a higher flexibility or it has, you know, it's more cohesive. So it's going to do X, Y, or Z. People make all these claims, but none of this is borne out by any by, by much science whatsoever. And my contention is that if you took a product you know, on one side of the face from the leading company that supposedly lasts two years and injected into the mid-face, their flagship two-year, less up to two-year gel injected on one side, and you inject the second company, which, you know, uh, has a higher, slightly higher G prime, but maybe has not been shown the last two years. Um, if you did a blinded study and got 100 injectors to judge them, okay, can you tell the difference between A and B? I don't think they'd be able to. Um, and that goes for so many of the gels that we use, barring big, big differences. I'm not going to use a super low G prime gel in someone's nose. All right. <laughs> but I think a lot of the differences um, that people accept as dogma from many of these courses is not the case. My contention is that I only need maybe three or four gels in my closet. I don't need 12 or 15 gels. Um, I don't think people can tell the difference. I can't. And ever since I've been trying to do more with less gels, I've had happier patients because I can actually bring them to the completion point that they otherwise might not have been able to afford. And I can tell you, they can't tell the difference between Voluma and Lyft. I can't tell the difference once I've injected one side with something, you know, like, or one patient with some, with one and another patient with another. Um, I think a lot of these injectors out there who are pushing, you need 12 different gels, and I can tell the difference between gel X on one side and Y on the other. I think it's bullshit. And until I'm convinced otherwise by studies with Vectra and 3D technology, I will remain unconvinced. This is where industry's dirty hand in our in our in our art history is is becoming a problem so david you have had one more thing david i've got this little hand signal thing going so we don't talk over each other i don't know if you <laughs> um so i think what you're saying is and, and i agree it doesn't matter what you use if you're a skilled injector and you're comfortable with you know the extrusion force and you understand how it's going to react and the type of swelling you get you could probably use anything you liked but you know you become comfortable with things and you like them and and there'll be certain ones that you don't like for whatever reason and i think it's so important not to get stuck into a routine which um you know this past weekend i was up on my office i've never really uh, you know used calcium hydroxyapatite before and this weekend i was because i want to try everything and i want to understand you know, I want to constantly be testing new things. And if something I like better, I'm going to try that. Um, so I, I'm, I'm always telling people that who will listen, look, make sure you don't get stuck into brand X, Y, or Z. Try new things. Check out other things that might have a better price point and allow you to give your patient more or allow your business to do better and invest in a laser that lets you then treat their skin or something like so. For me, it's about constantly trying new things, pushing the boundaries, experimenting within safety, um, but not getting stuck into a routine. Because once you get into a routine, that's when you stop growing and getting better. I thought in America that you guys, are there's a lot more freedom from the companies to sort of reward your loyalty. If you're buying from one brand, then they would sort of help you out. That's what I assumed or thought. It is, but you people get addicted to these things. Um, you know, And it's crazy because the big company here... Like you get their whole rewards program. They get you into a tier. 
And it's such a, it's, it's, it's gross. At the end of the year, they'll come by and, you know, they'll come into your office and they'll give you a check. Here's a check for $10,000. You're like, oh my <laughs> God, it's amazing. And meanwhile, you're spending with them, you know, $50,000 more than you may with their competitor whose gel, again, in my, my opinion, you would not be able to tell the difference between two sides. So they get you stuck into these reward programs and then they're, you're chasing these rewards because they come by and say, here's your check. Oh, and by the way, if you want to stay in your particular, you know, um, you know, black mamba diamond category, um, <laughs> you have to right now you have to spend another 50,000 and that will lock you in for another year. It's so shady. It's like, this is how we're, this is medicine. This is science. It's, it's like a pyramid scheme almost. They get you to buy and then they lock you in to the point where you're afraid to deviate. Um, Interesting. So, I guess most people are used to, you know, spending on their credit card, they get points or they go to their favorite God knows donut store and they get a little card or coffee. It, it, it's just a, it's a loyalty scheme. It, it, and, you know, yeah, I, I've, I've, I've always been the type of injector that I don't want to confuse my life. I'm the same as you. I've got four or five fillers in my cupboard, all from the same company because I know what they do and I like them and my patients haven't had any, you know, um, side effects. And away I go. I'm, I'm happy. I don't need to confuse my life. Um, mm -hmm. Whereas there are a lot of people who've got, like like you said, 15 different fillers. And I'm like, really? I don't get it. And, and see, it's very fashionable to be like, ah, I'm like, you don't need 15. And they'll be like, you just don't understand the difference in the feel between the flexibility of X and the G prime of this. And this one's a little bit more cohesive. So I think it blends. And they talk this bullshit because it makes them feel more elite. Whereas I, I would put my results against theirs any day of the week without talking so hoity-toity about the rheology of the different gels. It's very fashionable. And this, is, this ties into the whole you know, the insecurity and the pomp and ego of the people in our industries. Oh, I like to use X, Y, and Z because I think blah, 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 blah. It's like, look, it's all bullshit. Like in the end, you know, can you deliver with a couple different, if you can't deliver your results with three or four gels, I think, you, you know, like you're, you're not worth your salt. Or you're buying too much into the company's lines. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. You need 15 gels to get your result. That's crazy. Um, do you think that there will come a time with you when we were talking to, to Stephen Liu, Dr. Stephen Liu, a few weeks ago, and he was giving us some really exciting information about the new toxins that are coming and new fillers and new things to stimulate elastin and all these sorts of things. Being a plastic surgeon, can you see a, a time coming, whether it be in the next 5, 10, 15 years, where surgery is going to become really only there for like extreme situations where you're doing like a tummy tuck or like a, like a full-blown face it because someone's just so far gone. But now that we're sort of seeing people introducing these injectable interventions early on in their life and the products are getting better and the techniques are getting better, do you think that surgery will become less and less required for people to sort of work on anti-aging? I don't think so anytime soon, barring any... Any gigantic leap, which I haven't heard about. I think the big thing, which will always have surgery have its very defined place, not always, but for the foreseeable future, is skin laxity. And believe me, I've I've have I have all the devices. I've bought them all and wasted money on many. Um, the holy grail of cosmetic medicine is skin laxity. When you have a device which will non-invasively treat skin which is falling off someone's face then that is the time at which surgery will no longer be needed. But the thing is, 
there does not exist any device out there that I'm aware of that will really affect a significant change in skin laxity that will equate to removing an inch or taking all the structures and resuspending them. We're not there. You know, there's, you know, uh, Ulthera, Thermage, um, Thermi, um, InMode, all these companies are trying to do skin tightening, but every company that I've seen, it's it's slight. The effects are very modest. And until we make that leap where there's some device which can actually tighten tissues, because that's half of this thing, you know, half of the equation is tightening. We're all about filling, of course, and some people take it way too far. It's the skin envelope, you know, it's 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 radially expanding as we get older. And if all we're doing is filling it, it's just, you know, it's going to be a big, lumpy, heavy face. The other half of the equation is tightening. And right now, there's no amazing non-surgical tightening. Nothing equates to taking skin out. On the abdomen with the tummy tuck, on the face with the facelift, on the brow with the brow lift, nothing equates to resuspending and tightening skin. I know that, um, you know, you've been, I don't know whether you believe it or not, but you sort of question whether fillers can actually lift or is it an illusion and so on. When you're assessing a face um, on your injecting chair, at what point is your threshold of, sorry, I think you need to come and see me in the OR, or I think we can give this a good go with filler, you know, even if you need 10, 15 mils. I mean, I guess the question is, you know, how much have they actually descended? How loose is the tissue? Mm. And once someone's in their 60s, like, look, it's at that point, things have gotten so lax that the amount of filler that you would actually need to inject to create the vectors to lift would be disfiguring. Mm. All right. If someone's in their 30s, then that's a different story. You might have a little isolated malar hypo, you know, like deflation. And the tissues are firm enough that at that point where if you want to inject a syringe or two on that side, it can maybe reinflate and resuspend a little bit because the tissues are still firm. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately, it's being pushed so far in the other direction. People in their 50s, 60s, 70s, oh, we're just going to do a liquid facelift. You don't need surgery. It just doesn't work like that, as you well know. So I think um, I, I think it's, it's, it's the rare... Not not rare, but like once someone gets into their sixties, it's the rare patient that I'm going to try to be resuspending with fillers. Yeah, it's the skin quality kind of issue, isn't it? If they've got thin, yeah. sun damaged skin, forget it, pointless. Yeah. What about um, anti aging on a cellular level? Well, yeah, I mean, maybe you know someone you can recommend to us in terms of um, stem cell advancement and looking at those sorts of things. Obviously, you listen to Rogan; you probably heard the episode with Dr. Neil Reardon. Um, when he was on there with Mel Gibson talking about took his dad down there and got all these amazing stem cell treatments done. You know, you've got cage fighters who are getting these horrific career-ending injuries where their, you know, their knee is up near their ear and all these sorts of horrible things. And they're making these immaculate recoveries. You're just like, how, how, like, this is insane. Do you, do you see that this sort of uh, anti-aging on a cellular level is going to be something that's going to be a big part of our future in combat in, in, in aging? Yes. And that's one of the things where I mentioned before, barring any amazing leap forward, I think at some point there's going to be a huge leap forward with stem cell therapy, targeted stem cell therapy. Right now, it's so politicized, surprise, yeah. politicized in the <laughs> U.S. Um, that uh, there hasn't it hasn't really gotten much attention. In fact, it's illegal to use any kind of stem cells in the U.S., bona fide stem cells. Sure, people call 
stem cell based so they 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 um they, they use pseudoscience to to claim stem cells advantage but um in the states that field has been because of its close tie with fetuses and that link to abortion that's mm. highly politicized so that has been um ignored pretty much in the states stem cell research um but i think reprogramming our own tissues to reverse the aging process or halt it or prevent it that is going to be a huge leap forward to your point about um, you know these athletes and whatnot um you know going getting these treatments i can't really speak to that because you know it's it, so much of that stuff is off the record especially in yeah. the states because it's not sanctioned yeah and you're going to different countries and getting these like you know, shady clinics getting up, oh, got some magical stem cell treatment and suddenly, you know, my hand, which has been paralyzed my whole life is moving. There's so much anecdote and pseudoscience blended in with that. So it's hard to really call out the, the real science there. But certainly I think that's going to be, you know, I think stem cell therapies are going to be the future. And at some point we're going to look back, maybe it'll be 10 years from now where we look back, can you believe we were injecting people's faces with, fucking gel and calcium and, and all this crazy, you know, putting threads in people's faces. Like that stuff is going to seem ridiculously barbaric, maybe 10, maybe 20 years from now, because pretty soon, you know, once we, uh, once someone figures out the stem cell, uh, therapeutics, aging will, facial aging will be body aging will be a thing of the past. Now, mate, we've been speaking for over an hour and we haven't even got to an Instagram account. So we need to, <laughs> From stem cells to Instagram. Um, so, you know, for most injectors who, who may have never sort of met you, they, they'll definitely know you through your Instagram. When, when did you start it? And, and your hair. Your hair is very famous too. Yeah. <laughs> and the lollipop uh, caricature. Oh, yeah, that's right. I, I did that on the iPad, actually. Um, uh, Instagram, I did that, like, uh, I started three years ago. Um, and uh, it was... Uh, it was a professional boredom. I was uh, kind of fed up with, you know, I was working for a hospital and not um, not really creatively fulfilled, not happy with what I was doing, punch on the clock. And I went to a uh, it was Vegas Cosmetic, one of my favorite meetings. I would highly recommend that when meetings get back into place. Vegas Cosmetic, they, uh, they have an amazing um, uh, practice management track. It was a, a talk about, um, you know, being yourself in your marketing and your branding. And I remember sitting there thinking, like, oh, maybe I should. Like, you know, I'm, I, I think I'm kind of funny. I'm fun. Certainly don't take myself too seriously. Maybe I'll start doing that and letting that show through in our marketing. And I started doing that. And I thought, you know, I was certain it was going to lose me patience. That would be a turnoff for people expecting a more serious, you know, classic stiff surgeon. I thought it was going to lose me business, but I didn't care. Because, again, money doesn't motivate me. I want to do things that make me happy. Um and I found that uh, people loved it and they wanted more of it and it helped distinguish me from the competition. And if anything, it made people feel more comfortable coming to me and it was good for my business. So once I saw that, I leaned into it, started you know, being more of myself, more irreverent, more self-deprecating, more funny, more off the wall, like on Instagram. Um, and as I tell anyone who will listen, it's, it's about finding the right blend. You can't yeah. be too much of a wild ass or no one's going to come to you, but you can't be too serious and stiff either, or no one's going to come to you. You have to find the right balance of being yourself, being fun, being entertaining, but still credentialing yourself with showing you got the goods that you can produce the after results and, um, you know, and you're an expert. 
how far out do you plan your posts? I mean, obviously you do all of your drawings yourself and, and it's presumably written by you, but are you managing the whole thing or do you have someone stacking it all up and actually putting it on Instagram for you? Or do you do that as no, well? No, it's, it's all me. I mean, that's my hobby. And I think that's the difference. That's why my account has such a personal feel to it because it's really all me. Now, it takes me a lot of time and that's why it's my hobby. I don't golf. I don't ski. I don't do anything that most people do. I, yeah. you know, when I have some free time, I work on my Instagram. It's fun for me because I get to draw and I, that's my creative outlet. Um, so, you know, sometimes I'll post three times in a day. Other times I won't post for three weeks. It's kind of, it's uh, so it's a little bit haphazard. I have a bunch of ideas bouncing around right now. I have an idea in my head. I want to do um, a funny video about injecting through masks about a, uh, a, a course I want to give about how to inject through masks during COVID. And like, so that's been bouncing around my head for four weeks now. I haven't had time to get to it, but there's all these, you know, I have like a list somewhere, like a, a post, I get an idea, I write it down and then I'll get to it hopefully at some point. Yeah. I mean, my Instagram is nothing as, as big as yours and I try and do it myself. And even I find it like overwhelming because of trying it's to juggle. crazy, therapy. right? time injecting podcasts we've started webinars which uh you're welcome to come on and, and host one for us but uh yeah it's just been it's crazy but i know how you feel it's a full-time job but you can't just you can't just do it on the side you've got to dedicate your time and that's the thing like, to your point like you know you're, you have a bunch of these bunch of irons in the fire right now and like you have to really pick the ones that really make you uh, that you have success with and that make you happy because I like. I love to be able to spend more time on Facebook or try to, you know, Snapchat or or TikTok or YouTube or webinars or podcasts. There's all sorts of things we can do with our time, but at the end of the day, you only have so much time. So you have to find the thing that really resonates with you, and uh, you know, put your eggs in that basket. And if it's not working, then find a different basket. But uh, but for me, that's been Instagram. So I'm kind of just that's where I spend most of my time. The one thing that really interests me, and, and I'm sure you agree with me, is that there are a lot of doctors or injectors or just businesses who are sort of shy of Instagram or they're like, oh, social media, it's not really me. And they put all their money into this bullshit marketing campaign. And I'm like, this is free advertising every day to billions of people. Why don't you just do the free one? I don't understand it. Yeah, it's it's tougher these days, especially if someone just opening practice now it's so tough to grow an Instagram account. You know, when I first got into it like three years ago, the, the landscape was completely different. You know, there most plastic surgeons, maybe only 20% of practices just three years ago were actively posting on Instagram. And now it's everyone. Yeah. And so the content, you know, the algorithm is just overloaded with content and it's so much harder to grow whereas three years ago posting a video about a breast augmentation or a liquid rhinoplasty would wow what is this check this out and yeah. they'd follow and they'd engage these days it's old hat everyone's doing it so yeah. it's it's trying to find and not only that not only is it harder to distinguish yourself because all your competition is on instagram doing the exact same thing but now the algorithm they want you more so than ever to be spending money and they they're showing your posts to less people mm -hmm. so i think these days you know social media is still important it's the in my practice the most important advertising but even if you don't have a lot of followers then i would say that's where you should be spending your money on paid ads with social media as opposed to wasting it on a billboard or magazine article or radio spot or TV spot. It's still the best area to be spending your money, I think. 
See, I would argue, I would still say that the best thing is to do exactly what you do and go online and just be as real as possible. Even if you're just walking around your clinic saying, oh, this is where we inject and this is where you sit. People find that interesting because they're like, oh, looks all right. You know, it doesn't have to be fancy or paid. It's very organic and it's just you. It's just real. People connect with that stuff. Yeah. And I'll tell people it's, you know, it's, I don't sell anything. I've already said, I don't like selling to people and I don't have to anymore because people already know me through most of my patients, like 75% at least have seen my Instagram before they come in my doors. And so they'll scroll to Instagram and they'll, they'll learn about whatever they want to learn about. And they'll, they'll hear me talking about it. They trust me. They know me. So I'm, I'm not selling to them. So even if you only have a couple hundred followers, even like, guess what? Those followers are going to know you. And then when they want to come to get something done, they'll, they'll trust you. They're, you know, over some, some guy or gal that just has an ad out in the local, you know, style magazine. Yeah. Yeah. I've really relaxed how I sort of approach Instagram now. I'm like, you know what? I don't need to try and play the algorithm and know every new trick and tip. I just put up what I want to put up. It's educational. There's a mixture of before and afters and a bit of fun and it works. People come because they've seen that and and you've educated. So half of your consults done before they've even come to your practice. Exactly. And they're, they're, they're better informed about the procedures as well. If they've heard you talk about it, they don't have as many questions, which is good. Not because I don't want to answer the questions, but because they already understand it. They know. Yeah. Yeah, Google's been the great equalizer, hasn't it? You know, you were saying about, you know, having to sort of come in with the white code and the stethoscope. People aren't impressed by that anymore. You know, people can pick up their mobile device and get an answer to any question they're probably going to ask you. So it's about, you know, and then sometimes it's a double-edged sword because sometimes they've got a little bit of information and they don't understand like theory behind it and it sort of sometimes makes them make stupid decisions because they don't have all the background information. But in terms of like your relationship with a client, like you don't need to wow them with all that sort of pompous nonsense. It's just about being yourself and having a connection, right? Correct. And I think that um, I think more so than ever, having good good before and afters, like you mentioned. You know, Jacob, some of them, you know, it's a mix of everything, but you have to have good before and afters in there. Because one thing I was thinking about today, was it today or yesterday? But like, it crossed my mind, like, you know, it, it's, if you don't have the ability to produce amazing results, it is that much harder to get people in your clinic because whereas 20 years ago, people didn't really know how good you were because they hadn't seen your lookbook until they got into your lobby. These days, your lookbook is on display for everyone to see along with your competitor down the street, along with the competitor an hour away and five hours away. Mm-hmm. And your your the people who are on Instagram will shop around based on the results that they see. So it's imperative that you really spend time on not only creating amazing results, but presenting them in a very appealing way as well. So that I was thinking about that. I think it was today. Like, you know, man, that would suck if I couldn't you know, if I were just starting and I really couldn't do good work just yet, mm. um, what would I do? Because how how are you going to get people in your door? You can't just all be funny videos and, you know, you know. There's only so many memes you can do. <laughs> Correct. They're not going to show up unless you can walk the walk. Um, I'm just going to go through a couple of things that have sort of popped into my head about uh, themes that you've spoken about on your Instagram. So one of the ones that I fucking hate, and and you've been very vocal, is um, the smoke and mirrors that some injectors use for their before and afters. Why do you think people, I mean, it's pretty obvious why, because they either can't achieve the result or or they're just trying to get people in the door. But 
what, what tricks have you noticed that people do? So, so the consumer listening maybe is more aware. Ah, it's so there's so many. It could really fill up an hour just talking about the the, the smoke and mirrors. There, it's it's the subtle ones that get you the worst. And I, there are certain pages out there that are very very popular. And like I look at them, and it's not look. I don't begrudge anyone their success. I really don't. And these people are like thousands of miles from me. I don't care. Like you know, I'm not losing business because of them. But it bothers me to see. You know, for instance, the focal length thing is my, my my most recent one that I see all the time. People don't realize that if you if you take your before picture um, with the camera closer, it has a slight fishbowl effect. It makes your face look displeasing because your nose is slightly bigger, your mid face is slightly bigger, hmm. and then in the after picture, they hold the camera far away and just crop you know and zoom in, and the facial proportions are much nicer. I would encourage anyone at home listening or on their phone to try it take a selfie with the phone a foot from you and then take a selfie with the phone four feet from you and look at the difference which one looks better without having done anything else other than moving the camera that's just one example and you see these people look once or twice i get it maybe it was an accident but consistently in the before and afters to pull that same trick it's fluffing up a result and that that's disingenuous. And when I see that, I would never recommend someone to that injector because they're actively trying to deceive people by glowing up the result. Same with shadows and, you know, having the, the light up, you know, making it blow out all the wrinkles, um, you know, looking up in the under eye pictures, you know, putting your head back in the, in the submental pictures. There's so many different ways to fool. And it's almost, there's so many ways. It's almost to the point where it's like, I'd rather it be like Brazil where they're not allowed to have before and afters. I think that's the case. Um, because it's so easy to deceive people that people are just getting hooked on and sinker, you know? Yeah. Uh, I, mean, I don't do it. In. in fact, I don't have to have done any, but if you did a video, it's harder to, to mask it's real the patient's animating they can see from a you know a couple of different angles that yeah. might be a forward that's a good point yeah. actually jake the, the whole animation thing because people can look good in a, in a snapshot you might take like 10 photos of someone and then you snap this perfect angle where they just look immaculate and you might not have filtered it but you've curated your image selection and yeah. then it doesn't show yeah, how, look, how, how they move animated yeah yeah, I'm guilty of that as well. I think anyone who does this, like anyone's going to curate their feed, obviously. If you take 30 pictures, you're going to pick the one that looks best for your Instagram post. That's, you know, guilty as charged. Everyone does that. Like, But I think when you, that, that's some degree that's to be expected. But I think when people are actively manipulating angles and lights and tricks and head positions, and that's when it really starts to bother me. Yeah. You know, cellulite treatments. It's, it's yeah, how many the flash i've never seen the <laughs> yeah. flash i've never seen an amazing cellulite treatment before and after yeah there's some nice improvements it's possible for sure but i've never seen a home run it's, yeah. i don't think a home run exists for cellulite unless you're flash you're blowing out yeah. the picture with your lighting the best thing for cellulite is probably exercise and diet and, and exercise <laughs> probably yeah, at the moment you can't sell that right yeah exactly um, Moving on from animation quite nicely, the concept of myomodulation with filler. Now, those people who don't even know what that is, it's, it's the concept of using a filler to affect muscles in the face, either strengthening or weakening them. Now, bullet point, yes or no, does it work? Um, no. Bullet point, no. Um, to some degree, to some degree, here's where I'll get a little bit technical. Like, you know, Yes, if you load up a muscle with gel, 
it's not going to scrunch as easily, much like if you muck up an accordion with a bunch of concrete, it's not going to move. All right. So in that sense, myomodulation is a thing. Like it's going to, if someone has laxity of their face and you put a bunch of filler into it, it's not going to scrunch as much. So in that sense, okay, myomodulation can decrease movement. All right. But the way that these people are selling it by, I'm going to put a little bolus under the muscle and it's going to lever, it's going to, you know, cause your resting smile to be more natural and you're, you're, you're going to smile more naturally or, or worse yet that it's going to, you know, affect, you know, pressure receptors in the muscle and change the autonomic tone of your face. It's, it's, it's nonsense. It's like, what a preposterous idea. There's no science whatsoever that's going to back that up. And this is a perfect example of people make these claims and it sounds so cool. And injectors want the next coolest thing to latch onto. Interesting. Now, I mean, I, I can't tell you the mechanism because I really don't know and I've definitely not seen any studies. But the good one is sort of the dimply chin. You can definitely stop a dimply chin rather than using toxin with filler. You can treat a gummy smile and you can improve asymmetrical you know, smiles if you sort of treat the, the top of the zygomaticus. So I, I don't know. I don't know how it works, but it does work. See, that's, that's an example. The dimply chain is a good example where, where I say it can have an effect, but that's not myomodulation as it was described in the paper. The paper is describing it as you know the bolus acting as a lever on the muscle, which is making your smile work better. I don't. I think that's nonsense. So how, you know, how is it lifting if it's not doing that? Um, how, how is it lifting? So if someone's got a slightly saggy one corner of the mouth, and you treat the sort of the zygoma, and you get an apparent lift, what, what's going on there? I don't think it is. I mean, my contention would be: show me that on a vectra. And then I will start to, you know, well, this is I'll a start start to, up there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's it, look, like, hey, I could be wrong, but like number one, the, the the litmus test is does it make sense that if you really think about what's going on, a, a tiny 0.1 bolus of a of a of a mushy gel, all right? Picture it. Forget about the the the, the illustrations and how this looks on paper. All right, in the illustrations, it always looks like it's going to work on paper. It looks like a pulley. Of course, it's going to work. But no, think about how this actually acts in person. If you take a squirt of gel, 0.1 cc, a little blob of hyaluronic acid, and you're going to put it, look at my face. It's a big, it's a big gelatinous mess. Your <laughs> muscle is a gelatinous, not gelatinous, but it's a floppy noodle structure. The ligaments are soft, floppy structures. If suddenly I'm putting a one bolus in the cheek, and now I'm expecting that to act as a lever, almost like a ball bearing on a on a pulley, and that's going to suddenly effect the change. Again, point one. As someone who's done facelifts, I could tell you how hard it is to affect the corner of the mouth with actually pulling, cutting ligaments and pulling up. And someone's gonna tell me that a point one bolus placed up here on a muscle is going to lift the corner of the mouth. I find that ridiculous. No, I, I find it very optimistic to the point where okay if you're going to make an, a, a claim like that you better sure as shit show me some science you and look we have the tools these days show me on a vector if you're going to make a claim like that uh, don't make it like that original paper where it's like you know some goofy smile and like very easily manipulated show me on a vector put it on uh, I just got a vector, so I'm going to do really, you know, cool. unofficial studies like this. You know, I don't have the the clout to put these in the journals, and I don't care. Like, 
But what I'm going to do is start testing these things out myself because we have the tools these days. We have the 3D volumetric analysis where if I put that one little CC blob of jelly up there, I, if I'm going to make that claim, show me the goddamn science. Show me some evidence, something tangible. When you say you don't have the clout, why can't you write a paper? I mean, it's pretty easy. You just eh, I guess I could, but like, you know, I'm just so turned off by the whole academia, of, you know, the whole I don't know, that whole world to back to the point of like how I hated med school and you know I, you know, residency and like it's like that so much of academia is is again the good old boys club and who do you know, who's gonna who's the editor, are they gonna get you published or not? Is it industry funded your paper? You know, it's a I don't know. I'd rather, I'm more interested, and this speaks to what a weirdo I am. I'd rather just do a fun study and make a post or two on Instagram. You know, I don't know. That's not real science, of course, but, you know, it's just, it's, hey, it's better than someone on a podium making a claim about these things or publishing something without any evidence. Yeah. You know, that's, that, that's suspicious. I guess it's probably your only what's the way the formal way of arguing your, your argument for or against it is to just to study and try right yeah i mean look i'm all for new things and new theories but like you know and i'm more likely to 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 um to buy into a theory if it has reason and logic behind it mm-hmm. all right then i don't need as much evidence but if you're going to tell me that a little blob of jelly is going to cause pressure on a, corp- a pachinian corpuscle, which is then going to affect an autonomic loop in the central nervous system and make my overall face happier, that seems to me a preposterous idea. And if you're going to say something like that, then I want more science. And then I'm going to be more interested in the evidence you have to promote these things. Maybe that's the magic. Maybe... We need, we need to do a study. Come on, we'll write a paper together. We'll do it. Or we'll, do a, we'll, do a, we'll do a half-face challenge. You can use your cheap jelly, and I'll use the expensive one, and we'll see what happens. <laughs> yeah. Uh, these are the kind of things where I think is interesting. You know, yeah. That's, yeah. And no one's doing these things because it's hard to get industry to fund them. That's another reason why I think that, you know, ah, fuck it, I'll just do it on, the, uh, on Instagram. I'll do a fun post. Yeah. You know, I'll find a patient who's willing to do a split study, and yeah. then I'll, you know, you probably see people more people probably see that than if you publish the paper. It's funny, like you know, it, it, it's I don't know potentially, you know, patients don't make studies. Yeah, like well, I don't want to devalue the whole scientific process, yeah. obviously, or the importance of the journals. Yeah. But it's like you know, so much of of what's published these days is garbage, or or you know, industry has their hand in that, or the the KOLs are bought by the companies, or. You know, or, you know, it's my buddy who I went to residency with. Uh, it's so much of it has, has crept into academia and the, and the journals where it's uh, it's not as pure of a process as, as a lot of people think it is. I have to say, um, I hate academia as well. And I've, I've sounded like a very similar student to you. I wasn't kind of that standard medic. But I'm writing a paper now with a couple of injector buddies. We're not paid. No one's, there's, there's no even reason to do it. We're just going to do it because it's fun. So good. That's the that's the that's the way you should be doing it. But that's that's um that's unfortunately the that's not that's the exception to the rule these days. You know. Fair enough. Uh, another controversy with injecting aspiration. Where do you sit with that? Um, I don't really buy. I don't really do it because it's so unreliable. My safety measure is constant movement. So mm-hmm. if I'm constantly moving, 
aspiration is completely unnecessary. It's irrelevant because what do you do? Like it makes sense if I were a bolus injector and occasionally I will, if I'm doing the, a deep temple and I'll do the shotgun technique, then I will aspirate because it's in one spot and it's a potential. It makes sense to aspirate. Even if it's a high false negative, you're doing yeah. Hey, you have to do something, right? How long will um, you aspirate for in the temple? Um, I probably, the way I do it, the first aspiration, I'll probably do it for 10 to 15 seconds. All right. Um, and then again, it's not, yeah, it's not the definitive, but what I'll do is I'll spend a lot of time on that first aspiration and then I'll lay down my first bolus and then I'll, and I'll pull back and maybe that one I'll do eight seconds and then I'll bolus a little bit more. And then next one, I get a little bit more cavalier about it. I hate, I hate using that word, but the, the idea is for, to me, the larger the bolus that I've already created, the less likely it is that I'm, you know, in a vessel. Now my tip of my needle is ostensibly in a bolus of jelly. So that first one where I don't have that reassurance, I will spend more time pulling back. Mm -hmm. uh, but the vast majority of injections that I do, I do with cannula. So I'm constantly moving. And at which point aspiration is completely moot. People yeah. are like, well, you should aspirate anyway. Well, why? If I aspirate and I'm, if there's a flash, what are you going to do? You move it. No, so if I'm already moving. There's no way, unless yeah. it's astronomically unlikely that I've cannulated an artery and I'm still just in the same artery, I, I guess then. But when I move, I'm trying to constantly oscillate the direction a little bit. Yeah. And yet, up a little bit in exact precision but if you're in a vessel it's very hard to stay in a vessel if you're moving so yeah. that's where i that's where i think about aspiration if you're bolus injecting then yes do it you have to yeah. it's the same argument as when someone uses a needle for the lips you don't aspirate because you're constantly moving or you're laying a retrograde thread or whatever you're doing so mm -hmm. no one aspirates doing a lip either so it's a moot point yeah um i'm trying to think of oh yeah we, we've kind of covered lifting you you were like yes yeah, sort of maybe if you revolumize say a cheek you can get a little bit of apparent lift on the nasal a little bit and, and i think another important thing to mention is it's a lifting effect is only in my opinion directly where you place it here's another example of something that was dogma oh yeah you put it here it's going to lift the nasolabial fold that's not really the case there's a study i think it was like two years ago now by val lambros i believe in prs where he actually took a vector and this is why i love that machine and why i think it's so important and he did 70 patients or some i think and he injected their mid faces and with the vector he analyzed what it did to the nasolabial fold and if you believed the dogma of the gel companies well you put here it's going to lift the fold and lessen the fold it didn't it had a nice rejuvenating effect here of course because it reinflated right here but it doesn't affect lifting distant and i remember when they were trying to you know push at the time five years ago a new gel for mid-face volumization they were trying to tell me oh look it's going to you know it's going to help lift the lower face i'm like really and like yeah i'm like well show me some pictures they couldn't produce any pictures and now i know why because it doesn't. If you inject here, it's not going to lift here. Might it lift directly where you're injecting? Maybe because it's inflating the direct spot. But if you're relying on fillers to lift distant, I have a problem with that. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think that's the case. I mean, 
I don't want to get into too uh, academic and injecting, but going back to the myomodulation, it wasn't just like a blob and suddenly you've got a facelift. I think the, the premise was if you, you know, treat the elevated or the depressors, you get an overall effect. But, you know, I think that's how the lifting works. You're, you're affecting elevators or depressors somehow. And that's what you do with toxins as well. Okay. And that's what you'd be doing with toxins. If you did someone's platysma, you get an apparent sort of nicer jawline because you're stopping the sort of the muscle pulling down. That makes sense to me. Uh, without, you know, I don't want to get too far along that road, but, but that makes sense because that intrinsically you're weakening a muscle that's bowstringing off of the angle of the jaw. Mm-hmm. You know, contraction is going to cause it to bowstring off. So I know for certain that toxin relaxes muscle, and so it's going to relax it and allow it to fall back. Again, very subtle, but that works. That that That's an example of something that theoretically makes sense to me. There's no jump in the logic or reasoning. So yeah. I don't need necessarily a vector study to prove that. Whereas yeah. once you start to get into these small boluses of gel, you know, acting as pulleys on a muscle, that gets to be a little bit more, I need to see some evidence behind that, you know? Fair enough. Um, by the way, just to reference those two questions about aspiration and filler lifting was from Dr. Sarah Hart. Do you know Dr. Sarah Hart? She's in New Zealand. She's a very, very well-known injector, very skilled. I know her name. I've never met her. I've, okay. I've, the funny thing, I know no one in this business. People ask me all the time, oh, you know, the, like I am the least connected. I live in my little Philadelphia bubble and make my post, and that's the extent of my, uh, to your point about the, um, uh, you know, the... Uh, why why aren't i more uh prone to write an article i have no connections i know no one uh come on you know me now we can do it together <laughs> it's true if you i'm gonna ride on your coattails directly into the, to the journals <laughs> Fair enough. um another question here do you ever worry about what you say online do, have you ever done a post where you think oh, shit i probably shouldn't have done that one or, or i've done it in a way that kind of poked too many buttons on someone yeah, someone used a, a, a roller that you took the piss out of, a beauty roller. That's what they, that was. They oh, yeah, stuff. yeah. Beauty roller. I remember that one. Yeah, there's, um, yeah. There no death threats from pharmaceutical companies? No, surprisingly, no. And that's what a lot of people like, you know, they're like, <laughs> oh my God, I can't believe you're talking about these companies like that. Aren't you afraid? I'm like, what are we going to do? Like, put out a hit? No. <laughs> you know, like, it's not the mafia. They're drug companies. What are they going to do to me? Like, um, I don't know. Like, uh, I usually, once I come up with a post, I'll run it by my wife. She's my main sensor. And then I'll ask a couple people, you know, cause many times it doesn't make the cut. Like that's crazy. No, that's offensive. Well, okay. I won't do it then. But for the most part, surprisingly, um, no, I haven't done a lot of pushback I, about the, uh, you know, I've gotten some threats, take this down or, or we'll take action, you know, but, uh, for the most part, no. <laughs> You should just set up like a bloopers Instagram account where you put all of your questionable stuff up there just under a different alias. Oh, I would love to. I, that's why I love those accounts like <laughs> Says My Derm. Do you guys follow Says yeah. My Derm? Yeah, 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 yeah. She There's a lot of the amazing yeah. stuff. Yeah. <laughs> like the, um, because I, that's what I love about Hurricane. I think it's a shade. Like, you know, just yes. post like the stuff that we're all thinking, but yes. you can't post because no of the consequences. Yeah, yeah. You'll, you'll get all the social justice warriors um, hunting yes. you down. Um, just last two questions. Which surgeon or artist has inspired you? Um, Other than Jake uh, Sloan. Sorry. Uh, you know, <laughs> apart from my artists, obviously, we need to qualify that. Yeah. I was going to have a Jake Sloan picture right up there. Yeah, you should. Now, but no. <laughs> um, 
I, I like Dali. I mean, I like Dali and I like Da Vinci. Um, yeah. I think because, you know, Dali is such a he's different. I mean, look at him. He's a, he's a madman. You know, that, uh, that, that mustache, the goony eyes, like, but it's different. He's crazy, but like, it's different. That stands out. That's why I, I, I think he is brilliant. Um, you know, I, I really appreciate people just, even if I don't, even if I don't agree with something being different, not, I get bored by the same, same sameness. Um, and then Da Vinci, because he was good at so many things. He yeah, was a consummate yeah. man of science and art. He's inventing things and drawing things and painting things and doing experiments. Like that's, that to me is a, that's, you know, something to be uh, envied. And, what about Van Gogh? He cut off his own ears. That's different. Yes. And uh, what, a, what a tragic story. Like, he didn't get any recognition until, until he was dead. So that's yeah. a good lesson right there where, uh, you know, carpe diem, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and um, who's your injecting mentor or who do you discuss, you know, high level stuff with? I know you're a friend with Arthur. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, I wouldn't even say I'm friendly. I, I, he was nice enough to, you know, like, uh, I don't really... He's like in a different stratosphere, so I can't like bounce things off of, uh, you know, I think like, you know, just like people I'm friendly with. I have a lot of people I talk on Instagram with. And even though they're not as well known as Dr. Swift is like brilliant, like, you know, it's a, I learn a lot from colleagues like myself. who are just kind of trying new things. Like, so I don't really have like a, a mentor per se. I learn a lot from my colleagues, people, you know, who are not in the stratospheres of injector famedom, like so many are like, but I learned from my colleagues and, and from other, you know, and from those people as well, who are, who are household names in this industry. So I, 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 you can learn from everyone is my point. When I see someone who is a, you know, who speaks all over the world and they're, they're a famous injector. I don't necessarily <clears throat> think that they're any better than anyone. All right. I think they're a great presenter. I think that, you know, they do nice results, but there are thousands and thousands of injectors who do brilliant results. I don't think because you're a, you're a known name in this business, that means you're better than anyone. So I learn from them and I learn from colleagues who are ostensibly on the same level as me. You know, I I think so much of this business, like you get to be these rock star injectors. Oh my God, I know this one. Have you trained with X, Y, or Z? All that stuff is fluff. You know, I would rather, you know, I'm I'm just as interested in what one of my colleagues, you know, uh, down the street has to say. You can learn from anyone. Absolutely. of high school. Wanted to be in the cool group. Yes, yes, and I, I was a nerd in high school. Like, so I that that whole, it, you know, I hate that whole oh, the in crowd of injectors and KOLs. Like, I don't give a shit. You know, <laughs> I love it. Great time to end. Well, thank you so much for your time, Subi. I really appreciate it. It's thank taken you. a while to get there. No, but... this has been a lot of fun. I can't believe it. Has it been like an hour and a half? That's, yeah. This really flew. Time like, flies uh, inside aesthetics. You know, it was yeah. just yeah. so much fun. Yeah, you'll get a you'll 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 get a weird bonsai account following you in about five minutes, and that's me because I that's my art. So that's if you accept my friend request, if that's how you do it these days. Well, I'm on it. No, but thanks, guys. This is a this it was really it was a good talk. Um, I I really can't believe it's been an hour and a half because it flew by because we were you know such a good conversation. I appreciate I appreciate you guys uh, having me on. I really do. So um. But, uh, yeah, if, if you make it to the east coast of the states anytime soon, you have a friend here in Philly. So, uh, oh, thank you. Same goes to Sydney for Sydney when you awesome. eventually make it back. No, I'm just I, I want to. I just to enjoy it because I know you can't commit to this exactly. But we briefly discussed the webinar. If you have time, when once everything's settled down, we'd love to have you on. 
So have a think. And we'll... I, would, I would love to do that for sure. You know, it's a matter, it's a matter of when, not if. Yeah. Great. Thank you so much. Enjoy the rest right, of guys. Thank, Thank you. And be well, all right? Thank Take you. Care. Thank you. Bye. For our latest news, upcoming guests and episode topics, follow us on Instagram at inside underscore aesthetics. During the week before every recording, look out for our Instagram stories as we'll give you the opportunity to submit your questions to our guests and get a shout out. You can also DM us for any other information, suggestions or guest requests.